Well, how y'all doing? You know what, Rob? You know the plural of y'all. All y'all. All y'all. <laughs> well, I'm a southerner, but Rob is a hillbilly. I hope you know that. Yeah, he's from. He's deeper than I've ever been. You know, he was from the Tennessee uh, mountains, from the Smoky Mountains. So. Uh, you really got a hillbilly pastor, if that doesn't make you feel good. If you thought if it, having a southern pastor made you feel good, now you know you got a hillbilly pastor, so it's great. <laughs> well, we had a wonderful time yesterday. Uh, had a great time with the men of the church. It was a, a great day. And I'm excited about being back today with, uh, hey, you know, the church looks a lot prettier this morning. I, I can't imagine. I mean, it's... Uh, a lot more uh, friendly looking than it was yesterday, but some, some good things happened yesterday, I believe. Great. Well, this morning I'd like to uh, share with you, turn if you, in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. To Matthew chapter 12. In the title of my message this morning, A Splint and a Flint. A Splint and a Flint. Matthew chapter 12, and we'll read verses 20 and 21. But before we do, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our Bible study. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. And how your mercies are new every morning, and we all affirm great is your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today how we need it. Lord, the world that we live in is such a discouraging place. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would encourage us and you would remind us of your amazing grace. And give us hope, Lord. We need hope today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its promises. And ask for you to bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Ray and Carol Lehman live on the east coast of the United States. One summer they loaded their family into a van and they drove to the west coast. And if you've ever made one of these cross-country road trips, you know it takes a very, very long time. It is a very, very long drive. It takes almost forever. And it gets even longer when there are kids in the car. Well, to break up the trip, Carol decided to have a family kindness day. Each family member's name was written on a piece of paper and placed in the hat. Then everyone drew out a name. The challenge was to be as kind as possible throughout the day to that particular person. And it was a great idea. In the car and at the stops, all throughout the day, everyone found a kind deed to do for the person to whom they'd been assigned. Well, Carol's idea went so well that the next day, her youngest son, Darrell, asked if they could do it again. Well, Darrell passed the hat and everyone picked out a name. Once again, the family went out of their way to pour out love on their selection. Well, it took until lunchtime 
to notice a peculiarity. Little Durrell was enjoying an unprecedented amount of attention and love and kindness. Well, after a hurried investigation, it was revealed that Durrell had written his name on all of the papers that he had placed in the hat. He was hoarding the family's affections. And yet it's understandable, for we all crave kindness and love, do we not? Even those folks who've committed themselves to encourage others, even those in the ministry, need to be encouraged themselves. You know, often we're reluctant to pass on an encouraging word for fear of giving the other person the big head. We're afraid of inflating someone else's ego. Well, author Doug Fields, he proposes a litmus test to tell if a person needs to be encouraged. He concludes, if a person is breathing, they need encouragement. Life can tear us up and beat us down. It punches us drunk and slaps us silly. The world we occupy is a discouraging place. Beatdowns occur daily. That's why a little encouragement can go a long way. And I come to you this morning with words of hope. It reminds me of Hall of Fame basketball coach John Wooden. Coach Wooden led UCLA to 10 national titles. And he had a rule on his team. Whenever a player scored a basket, he was required to wink or nod or smile at the teammate who had passed him the ball. Well, once in instructing the team about this rule, one of the new players asked, Coach Wooden, what if he's not looking? The coach replied, I guarantee he'll look. See, the coach knew that we're all looking for affirmation. I've heard it said, man does not live by bread alone. He also needs some buttering up. And it's true. All human beings need daily doses of propping up. You know, today doctors hasten the healing process by performing all kinds of complex, invasive surgeries, bypasses, and ectomies, and transplants. But when it comes to the healing of the soul, sometimes a simple pat on the back is the best therapy. I've heard it said, a pat on the back to only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants is miles ahead in results. We all desperately need encouragement. And our Lord Jesus comes to us with healing and help and hope. In Matthew chapter 12, we find a messianic prophecy. It speaks of our Lord Jesus. Isaiah 42 described the Messiah and the nature of His ministry. And I love Isaiah 42. Let me hit a few highlights. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God says of His Son and servant, I have put My Spirit upon Him. Verse 4, declares, God declares of Jesus, He will not fail. In verse 6, God calls Him a light to the Gentiles. In verse 7, it predicts that Jesus will open blind eyes and bring out prisoners from the prison house. In verse 9, we're told Jesus will do new things. In light of all that Isaiah 42 promises of the Messiah, verse 10 is a command to all the nations, sing to the Lord a new song in His praise from the ends of the earth. But of all these pungent promises in Isaiah's prophecy, there's one prediction that captures and stirs Matthew's imagination more than all the others. It's Isaiah 42, verse 3. 
And it is the passage that Matthew quotes of Jesus in his gospel, chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. Let me read it to you again. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Our Lord is all about encouraging not extinguishing. To the bruised reed, he is a splint. And to the smoking flax, he is a flint. Our Lord Jesus is a splint and a flint. On the banks along the Jordan River, reeds grow high up to the sky. These bulrushes rise upwards as much as 18 feet above the water level. The tip of the reed carries a white plume Its base can be as thick as three inches in diameter. These reeds help with erosion control there along the riverbed. But they have other purposes as well. The lower portion is often used as a cane or a walking stick. The thinner middle section of the reed was used to craft musical instruments like flutes. The slender upper portion of the reed was used to carve pens and writing tools. Reeds were almost never used as weapons. And do you know why? It's because they lacked the necessary strength. You remember when Jesus spoke of the authority of John the Baptist, he asked rhetorically, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? In other words, unlike John, reeds are flimsy. In fact, a fragile reed swaying back and forth in the wind was a symbol for weakness. And a bruised reed was weaker still. Despite its intended use, a reed was useless if the stalk was bruised or crimped. It didn't even require a complete break. Just the slightest little bend in the stalk was enough for it to get uprooted and tossed aside. Since reeds grow in clumps, no one would ever take the time and make the effort to nurture back to health a single crippled reed. It would be a waste of time. Just throw it away. Go back down to the river bread, to the bulrushes, for another reed. There were plenty of other reeds to choose from. And the same was true of smoking flax. Flax was used in clothes and in textiles. Various fabrics were made out of its stalks. Once harvested, the stems were laid out to dry. And when the stalks became parched, they were easily shredded into individual threads. The most common use of flax in Jesus' day was as wicks for oil lamps. See, dry flax fiber is extremely flammable. Place a thread in a bowl of olive oil, hit it with a spark, and it easily ignites. It burns for a long time. The trick, though, was to keep the flax fiber dry. Moisten it just a little, and all it would do is smolder and smoke. Without really catching fire, a waterlogged wick was of no use. And just like a bruised reed, you threw away a smoking flax. You could purchase dry wicks for a penny a pound. The time and the effort it would take to reignite a smoldering wick was a total waste. Just grab another. And here's what I think. I believe that some of you in this room today living here in the 21st century, can best be described by these 2,000-year-old oriental analogies. 
Jesus' words and His idioms are timeless. You might not have used these terms when you came into the room today, but as you think about it now, this is how you feel inside. I'm a bruised reed. Wow. Maybe I'm a smoking flax. For like a bruised reed, you've been damaged. You've been bent against your will. You've been wounded. Your once tall stalk has a break now. Your weakness has become weaker. You feel like the slightest breeze could blow you over. You know you stand no chance in a windstorm. You've assumed that you're no longer fit for the purposes that God once intended. You feel like it's over for you. It would be easier for God just to go back down to the riverbank and start over with another reed. And like smoldering flax, perhaps you're exhausted this morning. Your enthusiasm, your passion for life and ministry, and maybe even your marriage has dissipated. You've been doused by a million drops of disappointment. Hope for the future, your willingness to love has been extinguished. If I looked into the furnace of your heart this morning, I'd feel a coldness. I'd see a few dying embers of a once roaring fire. Why would God waste time rekindling wet wood? You've assumed He prefers fresh flax. But here's what we don't realize. Jesus doesn't think the way we do. He's not so utilitarian. When Jesus builds something, He prefers to start with broken reeds. When He starts a fire, He likes to use smoldering flax. Jesus hasn't given up on you. Jesus is willing to invest in the bruised reed and in the smoking flax. He refuses to write them off or abandon either. He cares deeply for them both. Time used and effort spent, nurturing and healing provided, is never a waste in His eyes. Listen carefully. There are no throwaway people in the eyes of Jesus. Once I saw a movie about a long-shot racehorse, there's a scene where the old horse trainer saves the injured thoroughbred from a bullet in the head. Later, he's asked why. He replies, You don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. Please hear that again. You don't throw a whole life away just because he's banged up a little. That's what Jesus is saying in our text. And it's not only true of old horses, but it's also true of banged up people. Certainly, God created mankind to be far different than we turned out to be. When He scooped out of the ground a handful of dust to make the first man, He had perfection in mind. But then sin entered, and life got hard, and we got hurt, and people got banged up a lot. But Jesus doesn't scrap the damaged goods. He doesn't haul us off to the landfill. It would be easy for Jesus to toss aside the bruised reed and the smoking flax, but that is not in His nature. That is not how Jesus treats people. Hey, as far as Jesus is concerned, there are no disposable people. Did you know Jesus is a huge recycler? He is. He redeems and restores and reconciles and revives. Those are all Bible words. Jesus breathes new life into exhausted people. He still has plans for the bruised reeds.
and for the smoking flax. And the Gospels are full of such examples. Think of that woman taken in adultery. Man, that gal had been in more laps than a napkin. In fact, she was being exploited by the only man, by not only the man who she had slept with, but also by the Pharisees who had arranged this tryst in order to trap Jesus. This gal was a pawn in a move to try to checkmate the Savior. Talk about a bruised reed. Yet Jesus, the only person in the crowd that day qualified to cast a stone, didn't. There was no malice in his words when he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How many times have we replayed those words in our heads when we were guilty? Let's not forget them when the rocks are in our hands. Hey, he never broke a bruised reed. Think of Zacchaeus, the short guy with the long list of sins. He was an enemy collaborator, a swindler to boot. He sold out his own countrymen to strong arm for Rome. And Jesus spotted Zach up a tree. What a fitting place for him to be. In a proverbial sense, Zacchaeus lived his life out on a limb. But Jesus called him by name, invited himself over to Zach's house for dinner. Zacchaeus had burned his bridges and given up hope. He was a smoking flax if there ever was one. But the favor he felt from Jesus relit a spark in his cold soul. The compassion of Jesus helped this little man stand tall again. Restitution now had a reason. Think of the Gadarean demoniac. When Jesus cast the demons out of him. The first example of suicide, I suppose. Suicide. When he cast the demons out of the pigs. You remember the story? Went out of the man into the pigs. You remember Example of suicide. But think of how Jesus delivered that man. But imagine if if the demons went into the water, what those demons had been doing to the man. Can you imagine? Think of the sinful woman at Simon's house who bathed the Lord's feet with her tears and perfume. Jesus said she had a big love because she had been forgiven a big debt. Think of Peter's mother-in-law, racked with a fever, or the lame man who was lured through the roof, or Mary from Magdala who had been boarding seven demons, or the hemorrhaging woman who was reached up and grabbed his robe in faith, or blind Bartimaeus who was told to keep silent and yet kept asking, or any one of the infectious lepers who cried to be cleansed, or Mary of Bethany who, like so many of us, was tired from busily serving the Lord. These were all bruised people and smoldering hearts. And can you name me one that Jesus turned away? Can you name me one crippled, choking soul that He refused to help? No, you can't. And think of Peter. Perhaps the prime example of a bruised reed and a smoking flax. This man's faith was awfully flimsy. Even after boasting of his loyalty... Three times Peter denied his Lord in his most critical hour. You could say Peter proved chicken before the rooster crowed. Afterwards, he was so discouraged, he went fishing. He he figured he just wasn't cut out for this apostlehood. Besides, Jesus wouldn't use him now anyway, not after his failure. And so Peter went back to what he knew. 
He figured he could fish. But by the lake, on the beach, the risen Lord came to Peter. And he renewed his calling to a discouraged Peter. Three times Jesus told him, feed my sheep. These are just a few examples of God's grace in action. Realize, our failure is no greater than Peter's failure. Yet Jesus didn't forsake Peter, and he's sure not going to forsake you. Jesus doesn't bail on failed followers, and neither should we. His mercy endures forever. I love Psalm 136, 26 times in 26 couplets. The psalmist repeats the phrase, His mercy endures forever. He's trying to ram it into our heads. Never give up on Jesus, for He sure hasn't given up on you. Charles Spurgeon once commented on our text, he said, The feeblest are not disdained by Jesus. He is patient with those who are unlovely in His eyes. Jesus longs to bind up the broken reed and fan the smoking flax into flaming life. Oh, that poor sinners would remember this and trust in Him. Okay, poor sinner. Are you trusting in Jesus? Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. Have you ever walked through a vegetable garden and see the stalks of the tomato plants tied to their wooden stakes? On their own, those stalks aren't strong enough to keep the ripening tomatoes from dragging the ground. They need strength. They need support. Likewise, a bent person who's been knit or scarred totters under their own weight. But Jesus is a splint. He wraps His arms around you at the very point of your break. The strength of Jesus allows you to heal. Perhaps your injury is physical or emotional or relational or spiritual. It doesn't matter. Jesus promises to be your splint until you grow strong again. Perhaps you've been betrayed by a friend. Now it's difficult for you to trust another person. Maybe you've loved someone and were rejected and now you're reluctant to love again. Maybe your marriage is wounded. You're worried that your marriage will never be as strong as it once was. Maybe you embarked on a job or a ministry opportunity that didn't go so well and now you're doubting your gifts and your callings. You're a bruised reed. But realize, Jesus wants to give Himself to you. He wants to come alongside you at the point of your weakness and prove Himself strong. What greater gift could He give you? You know, the strategy you hear in the business world today is play to your strengths and minimize your weaknesses. But Jesus has a different way. He wants us to rely on Him at the point of our weakness. He wants us to admit our deficiencies, admit our inadequacies. He wants us to trust Him, to show Himself strong on our behalf. Jesus props up and He builds up flimsy folks until they get sturdy again. In the words of our text, He sends forth justice to victory. Jesus is a splint to the bruised reed. And make no mistake about it, He is also a flint to the smoking flax. Bear's Grylls. Does that ring a bell? Do you know who Bear's Grylls is? Yeah, he's the star of a show called Man vs. Wild. It was my boy's favorite show growing up. Then Bear's got a new survival show called Get Out Alive. 
was one of my wife's favorite shows. So I watched a lot of Bears Grills over the years. And one thing I've learned about surviving in the wild is that you need flint. For with that small piece of flint, you can kindle a fire. And with fire, you can cook and boil water and stay warm and dry clothes. Life is easier with fire. Every survivalist is excited to have fire. And the same is true spiritually. A life or a ministry or a marriage without spiritual fire, without the fires of enthusiasm and joy and motivation and love and commitment and passion and hope can be very, very difficult to survive in the wild of this world. You need fire. Imagine two different rooms on a cold, frozen night. The first room has a roaring fire in the fireplace. The family's all gathered around the hearth. Everyone is enjoying the smells and light and warmth of the fire. But now picture in your mind a second room. On this chilly night, the fireplace is empty. Folks walk through this room, but it's not a living room. Far from it. No one lives in this room. There's no warmth or light to attract people to stay because there's no fire. And what I've described are not just two rooms, but two lives. One life contains the flame of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside this person. And people are attracted to the love and the warmth and the light that they sense. But the other life is cold and empty and lonely. There's no life in this room because there's no fire. There's nothing that would attract anyone to come and stay here. Our tendency is to walk off from the room that's cold and empty. Why would we hang out there? But Jesus refuses to leave such a life. He stays behind with the cold and the empty. He refuses to abandon them. He wants to build a fire. For Jesus has flint. Jesus is the spark that can get the fires of enthusiasm and passion burning again. You know, at times it's hard to start a fire. You have to prime it and show some patience and be persistent. But those are all tasks Jesus is good at. He's an expert at rekindling fire. And not only can Jesus relight a fire in your heart, He can do the same in your marriage or with a friendship, or in your ministry. Jesus will take smoldering kindling, or just a flicker of a flame, and He can fan it back into a full-blown blaze. Jesus can reignite a calling that had nearly died out. He can revive a dream or a vision that had almost faded. He can reestablish a respect that's been smothered by failure. Jesus specializes in rekindling the burned out. You, you recall what John the Baptist declared of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You got it. Jesus is the Lord of the spark. He fires up new life. Now understand, the spiritual warfare that surrounds this ministry of Jesus, there's a battle going on. Our Lord is a splint and a flint, whereas our enemy 
is a harsh wind in a wet blanket. Satan's nature is just the opposite of Jesus. Let me warn you about Satan. Satan has the killer instinct. Do you understand what I mean when I use this term, the killer instinct? I mean, such a person doesn't just want to beat their opponent, they want to punish them. When they fall down, the goal is to finish them off. A football player with the killer instinct doesn't just tackle the quarterback, he tries to disable him and put him out of the game. And Satan has this kind of killer instinct. Satan doesn't just bend the reed or break its skin. He's the fierce wind that blows in to tear it in two. Satan doesn't just let the fire die down. He's the wet blanket. He's the bucket of water that snuffs out the coals. And if it were not for Jesus, Satan would work his cruelty on us. There'd be no hope for recovery. Our first failure would be fatal. It's Jesus that keeps hope alive. Do you ever suffer from inexplicable moodiness? Or is this just me? I mean, one day I'm soaring and the very next day I can be depressed. It's amazing how vulnerable I am to the highs and the lows, to the ebbs and the flows. A lot causes this kind of turbulence, but have you ever considered that a main cause could be spiritual? That that wave of encouragement followed by that wave of despair may be the result of spiritual warfare? When a bout with the blues strikes at a strange time, and for no apparent reason, there may actually be a spiritual battle raging to sink your faith? See, discouragement isn't always traceable to discernible, obvious causes. The enemy of our soul loves to ambush our feelings. But likewise, encouragement can also rise up and roll in over us from the same sort of, in the same sort of mysterious manner. Not long ago, my sons and I, we burned some debris in the meadow below our house. It was a huge bonfire. I think the neighbors got worried. Late in the afternoon, though, we doused it out with a big, big, water, big buckets of water and all, and we put out the blaze. But it was, a, it was two full days later. Two days, mind you. All of a sudden, I looked down in the meadow, and I saw smoke rising up again. I couldn't believe it. But that fire still had life. You see, the wind had kicked up, and it had stirred up a spark. It had reignited the smoldering ashes. And this is what Jesus can do in a believing heart. Even when there's no visible reason to be optimistic. Even when a positive outlook isn't tied to anything tangible. Even when you've seen it all burn out before your very eyes, hope can swoop in again. The Holy Spirit still blows like a mighty rushing wind. He is dispatched from the throne of grace. The Spirit of Jesus comes to us like a splint and like a flint. See, the starting point for you and I comes at the end of this morning's text. The last line that we read, Isaiah said, In His name, Gentiles will trust. Do you trust Jesus? 
not just in the macro sense, but in the micro sense. Years ago, when I was at the university in pursuit of my business degree, I had to take two courses in economics, macroeconomics and microeconomics. Macro is the big picture. It involves market trends and government regulations and the overall health of the economy. Whereas micro gets more specific. It deals with the choices of individuals and individual companies. And let me suggest that there is such a thing as macro and micro faith. Macro faith looks at the universal issues, whereas micro faith examines the matters that are specific to me. Macro faith embraces the overarching truths. There is a God. His Son is Jesus. He died to save me. He's alive today. The Bible is God's Word. But there's also micro faith. And this is the faith that you and I exhibit in the nitty-gritty of our lives. Do we let Jesus influence our thoughts? Or do we trust in our own wisdom? Do we obey Him in our finances? Do we lean on Him for our emotional needs? Do we trust Him in the day-to-day of our lives? See, both the macro and micro are important. You could say it like this. My eternal salvation depends on macro faith, while my internal salvation depends on micro faith. A bruised reed and a smoking flax needs a specific, targeted faith. We need to trust Jesus in the day-to-day. I'm sure you have macro faith, but my question to you this morning is do you have micro faith? Are you trusting Jesus at the point of your need? Do you trust Him at the exact point of your break? Right where the mending and healing needs to occur? At the very moment when the fire is about to smother and die out, that's when your faith needs to kick in. 2,000 years ago, a man was rejected and beaten and crucified and buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead, never to die again. You believe that, I know that. But the empty tomb is proof of so much more. Right now, your back is against the wall. You face what seems to be insurmountable problems. You're looking for reasons to hope, but not finding many. That's why you need to look again to that empty tomb. For Jesus too was a damaged reed. Jesus became cold embers for you and me. Are you telling me that your problems are greater than the hardships Jesus faced? Certainly not. Yet in the end, our Lord triumphed over our arch enemies, both sin and death. Now with that victory under His belt, nothing is impossible for Jesus. And Jesus will work miracles in your life if you trust in Him. Understand, your discouragement isn't really a big deal. In the grand scheme of things, it's tiny. It's the size of a mere coin. In contrast, Jesus is larger than the sun. He shines brighter. The warmth He generates is more powerful. But here's what can happen. If I hold this coin close to my eye, it can block out the enormous sun. To me, at that moment, this coin becomes larger than the sun itself. If I allow it, a tiny coin can block out the enormous sun. 
And in the same way, a small but well-placed speck of discouragement can devastate our faith. Friends, if we're going to walk in victory, we can't allow discouragement to ever get between our eyes and God's Son. Once a dad and his little boy, they were planning a fishing trip. For weeks, it was all the son could talk about. They were planning to leave the very next day. Excitement had been building and building in this little boy. The night before the big trip, the dad was tucking him into bed. When the little guy, he looked up at his father and he said to him, Daddy, thank you for tomorrow. And this is what faith says. Lord, thank you for tomorrow. Jesus rose again to be there in your tomorrow. Even when your strength fails, even when your passion fades, Jesus promises to be there in your tomorrow. A bruised reed, He will not break. Smoking flax, He will not quench. This is how Jesus treats us. This is how He wants us to treat others. All that's left for us is to put our trust in Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us this morning. And Lord, I pray that that Your Word would meet with compliant and obedient hearts this morning. That we would be submissive to the things we've heard. That we would receive these things into our life and be responsive and respond to You, Lord. Lord, may there be no resistance in our hearts. May there be no doubt or no hesitance. But Lord, may we follow the gentle tugging of Your Holy Spirit this morning. And Lord, if You are pulling us out of doubt into faith, if You're showing us Your plans and purposes for our life, if You're giving us hope, Lord, may we not resist. May we follow You, Lord, and embrace Your promises with all our heart. Lord, give us faith to believe this morning. Lord, help us to trust You. Lord, You are a great God. A bruised reed You won't break. Smoking flax You won't quench. You're a splint to the bruised reed. You can bring us back to healing and help and strength. You're a flint to the smoking flax. You can relight a spark in a marriage in a heart, in a friendship. Lord, do Your work in our hearts this morning, Lord. You are the way maker. You are the miracle worker. Lord, I pray that You would have Your way in our hearts this morning. We love You so much. And we thank You for Your love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.